Father, we come before You, and it's good to be back uh, standing behind this pulpit, standing before my brothers and sisters in Christ in, here in this church. I pray that You would quiet our minds and our hearts. Once again, I ask for that as we open Your Word together. Father, may You quiet their minds and their hearts as they hear Your Word preached to them. May they hear it as Your words. These are Your words. They are not mine. They are not my ideas. They are not my opinions, O Lord. These are Your words. These are, this is Your instruction to Your people. So may they receive it in that way. And may they receive it with glad hearts, joyfully. And also, Lord, may You be with me as I stand before them to preach. May You help me to proclaim Your truth with clarity in a way that can be understood and with passion. Oh Lord, with the joy that I have when I read Your Word and when I study it throughout the week, help me to communicate it in that way. And above all else, may the Lord Jesus Christ be put on display. May He be seen in all His glory. And it's in Christ's name we ask and pray these things. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the series, since we've been walking through this letter together. So as we begin this morning, I'm going to do an overview, a brief overview of the letter, what we've seen so far, kind of the main points that Paul's been making throughout chapters 1 to 5 and what we're going to see continue on into chapter 6. The way I'm going to do the overview is I'm going to handle it in the sections that we've been bringing up kind of throughout the series. Remember, there's three sections within the letter, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4, and then chapters 5 and 6. Not 4, but 3. Brought up that finger, wasn't supposed to do that. So I'm going to do the overview in that way. And then we'll, we'll read the text together and we'll walk through our passage. So in chapters 1 and 2, the first section of the letter, you may remember that the main thing that Paul was doing there was that he was defending the gospel, the one true gospel, and he was also defending himself. He was defending the gospel because of why? The Galatians were turning away to another so-called gospel that the false teachers or that the Judaizers were trying to put before them or convince them of. They were trying to show or they were trying to convince them that this gospel, this works-based gospel, is the true gospel. And Paul says, no. The gospel that I proclaim to you, Galatians, that's the true gospel. And that's the only gospel. And if anybody comes to you and they proclaim a different gospel, they should be accursed. Because it's not true. And then he defended himself because these false teachers were saying that he he preached this gospel just because he wanted people to like him. He wanted people to think well of, of himself, of Paul. And Paul says, no, I preach this gospel, I proclaim this gospel because I received it first and foremost from God Himself, from Christ. And then he showed that his life shows that. He received it from Christ 
with His authority. And all of Paul's life shows that he doesn't try to please man, but he tries to please his Lord. That's why he does what he does. That's why he preaches what he preaches. And then in chapters 3 and 4, well, really at the beginning, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 2 and then on into chapters 3 and 4, we saw Paul begin to lay out the truth of that gospel. What this gospel is made up of, the the guts of the gospel, what the gospel is all about. And he did this using Scripture. You remember? He brought up the Old Testament, showing that the Bible has always proclaimed that you are made right with God or justified before God by faith. You are made right with God, you're justified before Him by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, and it all results in the glory of God alone. That's what the gospel is all about. And when you are made right with God, you are then brought into His family, you are made a son or a daughter, You are a son of God or you are a daughter of God. You now have His favor upon you because Jesus Christ took the curse of your sin that we and you so righteously deserve. He took that so that you can have the favor of God. And you are also made free in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to the world or to the flesh. And then when we came to chapter 5, which we've been looking at the past, or over the recent weeks, when we came to chapter 5, the, the final section, we saw Paul begin with saying, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Or He set us free. And you may remember that I said that Paul uses that word freedom to summarize everything that he's been talking about in chapters 3 and 4. So the gospel is freedom. That's where true freedom is found. And he also uses freedom because you need to realize unless you are free, or if... Let me say that a different way. If you are not free, or if you do not understand this freedom, then you cannot walk in the fruit of freedom, or you cannot walk in Christian living. You need to know that chapters 3 and 4, the meat of the gospel, which is freedom, then paves the way for you to walk in that freedom. And also described it in this way, that now that you are free in Christ, you no longer are empty. You no longer have this cavity within you that's going around, you know, sucking affirmation or satisfaction or pleasure or joy from other people or from the world or things like that because you are you're free in Christ, you've been filled in him, and that freedom results in service because now you're full and you can overflow into others. You know, this freedom doesn't result in you just having a license to sin. 
oh, now I'm free. Christ has set me free. And so now I can just go around doing whatever I want to do. Because He's removed the wrath of God. He's removed sin and guilt. He's removed the fear of death. No, Christ has filled you and He has set you free so that you can serve others. And that's what Paul meant whenever he said in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we are called to look like in our freedom. We actually begin to fulfill the law that was once oppressive to us. Because we've been set free. God has filled us with His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And we now desire to do these things. And then in the most recent sermon that we walked through together, in verses 16 to 24, we saw Paul say, or we saw him give us the command to be walking by the Spirit. And then he gave a promise. So we are to be walking by the Spirit And if we are walking by the Spirit, we will not be gratifying the desires of the flesh. Meaning that the desires of the flesh will not ultimately have victory upon you. Because you are being led by the Spirit. You are walking by the Spirit. And then he showed what the fruits of the flesh look like. People who do not walk in the Spirit of God. And then he went on to show the fruits of the Spirit. If you are indeed walking by the Spirit, if you're being led by the Spirit, then these are the fruits that you will bear in your life. Yes, it's a battle. There's opposition. You know, you still have the old self within you. You still have sin within you that is opposed to the Spirit. And the Spirit is opposed to the flesh. There's a battle that goes on. But overall you will be growing in Christ-likeness. You will be growing in these fruits. They will be displayed in your life. And now we come to verse 25 of of chapter 5. Now as we read this passage together, I want you to remember that originally when the Bible was written, there were no chapter breaks, and there were no verses. I bring that up because very often when we read chapter 6 of Galatians, it kind of seems like Paul is throwing some things together. You know, He's come to the end of the letter, and now he's just, he's just giving a bunch of good things that we should be doing, like we are to be restoring one another in a spirit of gentleness. We're to be keeping watch on ourselves as we do this. Or we're to be bearing one another's burdens. We're to be testing our own work. And then on down into verses 6-10, to he names some other things. Without verses 25 or 24, and, excuse me, 25 and 26, it seems like Paul just kind of links these things together. 
But if you put verses 25 and 26 together with chapter 6, you see that it's all one idea there. These aren't just you know, helpful things that Paul is trying to give to these Christians to be doing. He's not just saying, hey, by the way, you should be bearing one another's burdens. You should be restoring each other in if they're called in a transgression. Or, hey, by the way, you should be doing this as well. No, this is all one idea that flows through all of these. And we see that in verses 25 and 26. So keep that in mind as we, as we walk through it. Beginning in verse 25, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then right on into chapter 6, Brothers, or brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. In verse 25, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit. In saying if we live by the Spirit, he's referring back to everything that he's just said in verses 16 to 24 about Christians and how they are to be walking by the Spirit. You see that in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit. Or also when he says, but if you are led by the Spirit in verse 18. And then in verses 22 to 24, he shows the fruits of the Spirit. So all of those things he piles together and he summarizes them by saying, if we live by the Spirit. So if that's you, if you are living by the Spirit, if you are the people who are defined by living by the Spirit, if you are those who walk by the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit, who bear the fruits of the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If that's you, then you should be keeping in step with the Spirit. You'd be like, okay, Paul, didn't you just pretty much say that in all of those verses in that previous passage that we just saw? Yes and no. He did say it, but now he's saying it in a different way. Now what Paul is saying is that if this is you, if you are defined by walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then you are to be continually throughout your life, your Christian life, staying in step with Him. And the idea here, or the picture here, is like marching, like soldiers who are marching together. 
You think about some of you who, who may have like a, you know, some knowledge of the military. When soldiers march together, or if you have a platoon that's marching, you have the group of soldiers, and then you have the platoon sergeant who's to the side, who's calling the cadence, right? They're following that guy. He's laying out the cadence that they should be following. I remember whenever I was, I think, probably 15 or something like that. I was never in the military, but I got sent to a military school, which was nowhere near as hard as I imagine basic training is, but it's still pretty rough. I mean, these guys, their whole goal was to break you down and make you feel like you were you know, that tall. But anyways, we had to march everywhere we went, and I hated it. I hated marching. Oh, man, marching, I didn't like it. It was aggravating. But when you were marching, our platoon sergeant, he was off to the side when we were just walking or if we were running together. He was calling the cadence, and we had to be in step with him. And if you were not in step with him, he would light you up (laughs) in some way. Now, Paul's not saying that you're going to be lit up if you fall out of cadence, but you get the point here. The Spirit is the one who's calling the cadence. And you are to be in step with Him. You're to be walking behind the Spirit of God. You are to be following His leading. You are to be bearing His fruit. And you remember I laid three things out that you should be putting yourself in to be doing these things. Number one was reading God's Word. This is where the Spirit pours Himself out at. This is how you are led by the Spirit, how you walk by the Spirit, how you bear the fruit of the Spirit. And here, how you stay in cadence or in step with Him. The second one was in prayer. The Spirit of God is pouring Himself out in His people as they pray, individually and as a whole. And then number three was as we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, like we are this morning. Those are the three places. You need to be in that formation, going back to the military analogy there, you need to be in those formations if you want to be obedient to what Paul is saying here keeping in step with the Spirit. And then in in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 6, we're not going to look at all 10 verses. We're only going to look at verses 1 to 5. But in verses 1 to 10, Paul's going to show us some examples of what it looks like to be keeping in step with the Spirit. I mean, he already kind of gave us some generalized, he gave us a generalized idea of what this looks like when he named off the fruits of the Spirit. But now he kind of puts them within circumstances. So you can see how these things play out. So we're going to see in verses 1 to 10 and in verses 1 to 5 this morning. But before he does that, he wants to first give us a warning in verses, or excuse me, in verse 26. He wants to first show us what it looks like to not be keeping in step with the Spirit. He says, Let us not become conceited. 
provoking one another, envying one another. I want you to focus in on that word conceited that Paul uses there. What does conceited mean? When you, when you think of a conceited person, what are they like? A, a conceited person is a person who is all about themselves, right? They are conceited. Oh man, they are all about themselves. That's all they think about. I think that that word is a good word and it conveys the meaning of the original word pretty well. But the original word literally means empty of praise. Empty of praise. Hence, that's where our translators use the word conceited. If you, if you have the King James, you read, let us not be desirous of vain glory. They're trying to get across the idea of being empty of praise. Paul is trying to show us we should not be people who are empty of affirmation. We should not be people who are empty of acceptance or praise. We should not act like people who are empty of those things, who just go around trying to be filled by other things. We should not be a person who is empty. Why? It goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. In the Gospel, in what Christ has done for you, you are what? You are filled. You are filled in Christ. That's why Paul says this. Let us not become conceited. Why? Because you're filled in Christ. He has filled you with all the affirmation that you need. He has filled you with all the acceptance that you need. The person who's conceited, or as the King James Version says, the vainglorious person, they are the way that they are because they have not been filled in Christ. And so they need you to do it for them. That's why they need you to say good things about them. Or if that's you this morning, that's why you need other people to say good things about you. That's why when you do something, you have you in mind and not other people because you're empty and you are trying to suck what you do not have, which is fullness, out of these people or out of these possessions, out of your money or your stuff or the world or whatever. We've been filled in Christ. And Paul names two ways in the second part of this verse that the empty person will show themselves or act because of their emptiness. So the person who is conceited or the person who is empty of praise, empty of affirmation, empty of acceptance, is either going to provoke other people which means challenge them, seek to rival with them, or they're going to envy 
them. Wish that they had what this other person had. I like how John Stott in his commentary on Galatians said it. He says that provoking one another can also be known as the superiority complex. And envying one another can be known as the inferiority complex. You think about the person who goes around provoking or challenging. This is a person who is empty and when they see other people, they see an opportunity to make much of themselves. Hey, man, this person right here, I'm so much better than they are and I'm about to make it known so that I can puff myself up so I can find affirmation and making this person small and making myself big. They go around showing off all of the time because of that reason. Or, rather than being superior or thinking that you're superior than others, trying to prove your superiority, trying to rival or challenge people, you can be the person who is inferior has the inferiority complex. The person who sees someone, knows that they're better than they are, that they can't beat them, and envies them for it, hates them for it, and wishes that they had what this other person had so that then they would receive affirmation. You know, only if I had the talent that they had or the skill that they had or the stuff that they had, then I would be filled then I would find my affirmation. Then I would find my acceptance. So you see what Paul's doing there? You see why he brings those two things up? If you are empty, if you have not been filled in Christ, you fall into one of those categories or both of them. Even as Christians, we still battle with this, right? Man, as I was studying this passage this past week, that verse cut me to the heart. Because very often, whenever I stand in this pulpit and I preach my sermon and I get down, you know, I automatically start looking for people to say good things about my sermon that I just preached. You know, say, say good things about it. Tell me how good of a job that I just did. You know, make me feel good about myself. Because I don't feel like I did a good job, and I need you to tell me that I did a good job. You know, even as Christians, we still battle against this, going back to verses 16 to 24. You know, there's still opposition there. And you know why? When we do that, it's because we have forgotten the gospel. In that moment, whenever I stand at the back and I feel like I need your affirmation of what I just done, or, or what I've just uh, pre the sermon that I've just preached, needing you to tell me good things. I have forgotten that everything that I need, all the affirmation, all the acceptance that I need is in Christ and it's not in you. And the good things that you're going to tell me, maybe, or the bad things. You know, if somebody just rails against my sermon because they didn't like that a particular truth just really pricked them in the heart and they just lash out on me, it's okay. Everything I need is in Christ. All my affirmation, all my glory, all my acceptance, it's all in Jesus. And it's the same for you, Christian. 
if you are a Christian this morning, all of your affirmation, all of your glory, all of your acceptance is found within the gospel. You don't have to seek it from other people. It's found in Him. And oh, that is so important because if we're not like what Paul says here, if we are not people who are filled with the Spirit of God, if we are not a people who know that we are full in Christ, then we're not going to be able to do any of the things that Paul's about to name in verses 1 to 10. You're not going to be able to do them. You may act like it. You may pull it off for a little while like phony Christians do. But you won't truly be able to do these things. So what are they? What are the things that Paul's going to name here? What are these things that Paul is about to name that we first need to be filled in Christ so that we can do them? Well, he names three in verses 1 to 5. And the first one that he names is restoring one another. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, people who, are been, people who have been filled in the gospel, we are to be a people who are known and defined in restoring or as restoring one another. Look at what Paul says. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, he's not talking about church discipline here. I mean, yes, all of the things that he's about to say, they apply to church discipline, that process of church discipline, but this is just everyday life. This is just everyday life as we walk together in Christ. If we as brothers and sisters in Christ see one of our fellow Christians stuck in sin. They're, you know, they're just having a really hard time. They're struggling. You know, they, they have some type of, of issue that they just can't get past. We are called, if we, if we know about it, if we see it, we are called to enter in and help them, to restore them to remind them of the truth of the gospel. And if they've wandered away from the fellowship for some reason, to bring them back. Notice that Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him or her. Paul does not mean by saying, you who are spiritual, an elite group of Christians. That's not what he means when he says, you who are spiritual. Because... Who is you who are spiritual if you look back to the passage that we just went through a few weeks ago? Who are those who are spiritual? It's everybody who's in Christ, right? If you are in Christ, then you are the one He's talking about right here. A Christian! You know, we, we tend to 
if we get put in a situation like this as Christians, maybe we, we know somebody's struggling and we think to ourselves, I can't help them. What am I going to do? You know, what kind of wisdom can I bestow on this person to help them out? You know, this other person over here, you know, this elite Christian or this elite group of Christians, they should be the ones to go and, and restore this person. So you then leave and you go tell these persons, hey, so and so struggling, you need to go help them out. Paul says, you who are spiritual, Christians should do this. All Christians. This is your responsibility. This is our responsibility. Now, you need a level of maturity to do this. You don't have to be an elite Christian. There are no elite Christians. But you do need a level of maturity. I mean, if there is a Christian who maybe young in their faith, you know, if they were to go and try to restore somebody, they may would just make the situation a little bit more messy. Maybe they shouldn't be the ones to go. Not because they're less of a Christian and that you're better than they are, but just because they're not mature enough yet. Now, you do need a level of maturity to do this. But you don't need to be an elite Christian. You who are spiritual should restore Him in a spirit of gentleness. And I want you to notice that Paul brought that up in the fruits of the Spirit. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. That you are a gentle person. Again, he's referring to Christians. You who are spiritual. You who are gentle. Which should be all of us. As we are being led by the Spirit. As we are walking by the Spirit as we live in Him. You who are spiritual, all Christians, and we do this in a spirit of gentleness. And the last thing he brings up on this first, this first uh, example, he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. When we go out to bring up the fault of somebody else, to restore somebody else, to show them where they're wrong, you need to know that you are just like them. You are just as weak. You are just as prone to sin. You are just as prone to wander. And so you need to, as Jesus says in the Gospel accounts, when you go to your brother, you take the log that's in your eye out first so that you can then clearly take the speck that's out of their eye. We keep watch on ourselves, knowing that we are just as weak as we go and bring up the fault of a brother and sister and seek to restore them. We are all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We all struggle with sin. We're all tempted to sin. If you go into a situation prideful, thinking that, oh, I got this, you know, you're probably going to fall into the sin with them. You know, whatever it may be. If you're a man and you know that your brother is struggling with pornography, if he's struggling with sexual sin, if he's struggling with lust, and you just think that you're above those things, and you go into that situation thinking that those temptations can't touch you, you're a fool. Satan's way smarter than you are, I promise. Or maybe another situation, you know, whatever it may be. 
You know, whatever sin this brother or sister may be struggling with, you need to be exercising wisdom and caution, keeping watch on yourself. The second one that Paul brings up is bearing one another's burdens. You see that in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then he adds to it in verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. As Christians, as we walk together in Christ, as we walk together being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the, keeping in step with the Spirit, we are to be bearing one another's burdens. That word burden there means like a crushing weight. You know, it's something that's crushing somebody in our church family. It's crushing one of our fellow Christians. And that can either be a spiritual crushing weight or it can be a physical crushing weight. You know, maybe they are struggling spiritually some way they are just having a, a really hard time you know, understanding the Bible and how to apply it to their lives. They feel very discouraged. Maybe they're just crushed with discouragement, feeling like they cannot be used by the Lord Jesus because all they can see is their own faults. And we are to enter in. And you know, maybe this is an everyday thing for them. This is something that's constantly happening to them. We are to enter in and to take the other side of the burden and help them lift it. You know, they're, they're there being crushed by this weight, trying to carry it on their own, and we're called to help them lift it. If they're bearing it on their own, they're being crushed. If you go alongside of them and grab the other side, as one pastor illustration he used, if they're being crushed by 100 pounds and you go alongside, pick it up, now you got 50 pounds. If four of you, or if, excuse me, if three of you go and help, then you're all bearing 25 pounds. You get the picture? You are taking the weight off of this person. Or if it's a physical burden, maybe they are just really struggling financially. Or maybe they are disabled. Maybe they are struggling with illness, with disease. They're just being crushed physically in some way. We are called to enter in and to put our hands on the burden in whichever way we can. You know, we may not heal the sickness or the disease, but we can go over and help them do something that they can't do for themselves. Now I just want to pause for a moment and think back to the verse 26 that Paul brought up. You know, the person that we're not supposed to be like. The person who's conceited. The person who's empty. The person who's all about themselves all the time. You think they're going to do these things? No. Because what are they going to gain? Nothing. A person like verse 26 looks at a person who is constantly struggling spiritually 
And they say to themselves, I don't want anything to do with that person. They're going to cramp my style. You know, they are just going to require of me and add nothing to me. Think of the person who's struggling with sickness or financially or, or whatever. The person who's conceited, who is empty of praise, who always needs affirmation, they're not going to enter in because they treat people as if they are the market. You know, what can I gain? What can you give me? And Paul's saying you're not to be that way. Again, because you're filled in Christ and you overflow to them. You have everything that you need and so that you can enter in. It's not about what they can add to you. You are filled. And so now you can kind of see why those two verses in chapter 5 are necessary to just flow right into chapter 6 and to see what Paul's talking about. That one idea flows through all of these verses. And that's what he's talking about in verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, if anyone thinks he's something, they're not going to do that. We're not going to bear each other's burdens. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is actually nothing, he deceives himself. If you think that you are something, you are deceived because you are nothing. Timothy Keller, his message on this, this chapter I thought was really good. I commend it to you. He preached it at uh, the Gospel Coalition. If you wanted to look it up, you can just go gospelcoalition.com, look up Galatians, and find the message by Timothy Keller. He says on this verse that this is half the gospel. You are nothing. That's half the gospel. You're nothing. And then the other half is, is that Christ comes, He dies for you, and in Him you become something. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then the last thing that he brings up. Testing our own work so that we do not boast and others. And this is verses 4 and 5. He says, but let, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now this is not in, in contradiction with what he just said, talking about bearing one another's burdens. You know, He just told us to be bearing each other's burdens, but now he's saying in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Well, what's that all about? Well, the word load is different from the word burden. Burden meant like a crushing weight. Load means like a cargo, something that's necessary to take with you, something that is given to you, not like the crushing weight like before. So what Paul is saying here in verse 5, or excuse me, in verses 4 and 5, he's telling us to be testing our own work, our own work referring to the work that we have in Christ, you know, our own fruits, 
our own obedience, that work, testing our own work, what it looks like, what it's really made of? Is it made of Spirit-filled fruit? Or is it just made of self-made fruit? Test your own work. And then His reason to boast will be in Himself alone. When we test our own work, and we know that it is indeed Christ working in us, filling us, causing us to work, bearing fruit in us and through us, you don't have to boast in other people. You don't have to boast in their work. You don't have to boast in what they're doing. Again, going back to the same idea in verses 24 and 25, or 25 and 26, if you've been filled in Christ, you don't always have to have your eye on somebody else. You test your own work. You know what Christ is doing in you. You know what the Spirit is doing in you. And you can boast in yourself. Not boasting as if, oh, look at me, look how great I am. But you can be confident in yourself. Knowing that Christ is indeed and work in you as well as the Spirit. And you won't have to boast in your neighbor and what he's doing or the fruit that he has. And then he says, for each will have to bear his own load. He's referring to that day when you stand before God. You will bring your cargo or your load that was given to you before Him. And nobody else can take it from you. Nobody else can bear it for you. What God has given to you, you will stand before Him with. And if it was self-made, it will be burned away and amount to nothing. If it was Christ-made or Spirit-made, genuinely made, then it will last. That's what Paul is saying here. And then next week in verses 6 to 10, we're going to see that same idea follow through those verses. But now as I close this morning, I just want to ask you all to chapel. You know, as we walk through these verses... Do we look like this? Are we this kind of people that Paul is calling for? Do we love each other like this? Do we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ because we have been filled in Him? Or are we like the person who is empty of praise? And we just, you know, we show up here, we serve each other, we help each other just so we can be seen, so we can be heard, so that other people can make much of us. You know, we, we go to other people's houses, we, we pray with them, we serve them just so they can, you know, say good things about us. You know, are we like that? Or in our individual lives? Are we a people who are constantly going around sucking affirmation, sucking acceptance from the world, from other people? Or do we know? Are we firm on the truth? Are we standing firm on the truth that in Christ we have all the affirmation that we need, all the acceptance that we need? If all of the world turns against you, if you're best friend turns against you, says horrible things about you, it's okay. 
Your affirmation is in Christ. Now, are we like that? And if you're not a Christian this morning, you have that hole within you. You were born with it. Because it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That cavity, that hole, that empty of praise hole was created when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were cast away from His presence. Again, as Timothy Keller put in his message, I love this, you were created to hear from God, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what you were created to hear. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were cast away from that affirmation. And until we come to know Christ, we just go around seeking it wherever we can find it. Tell me, well done. Tell me, well done. Please tell me, well done. In Christ, God does indeed say that to you. So I call to you this morning, turn to Him and find that affirmation. Find that glory. Find that acceptance because you're not going to find it anywhere else. Father, we come before You and oh, we, we praise You and thank You for Your Word. Oh, how good it is to be reminded that in Christ we have all the affirmation, all the acceptance that we need. Our longing for, to, be, to be liked, to be praised, to be affirmed, to be accepted, all that ends when we come to know Christ. I pray that you would encourage your people this morning because as we were talking about a moment ago, it is so easy for us to forget this. It's so easy for us to, to forget the gospel, to forget what Christ has done. Oh, may you plant it firm in their minds and as Martin Luther said long ago, may we beat it into our heads. May we know it. And also think of uh, the person who may be here this morning who's not a Christian, who does not know this affirmation in Christ. May you draw them to the Lord Jesus that they may know it and find their greatest joy, their greatest satisfaction, their only true satisfaction in Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.